So this is like truly the definition of a hard science fiction book. <laughs> like yeah. the, you, I actually am curious if you guys felt like you understood the book. <laughs> I, yeah, this, that's a great question. Uh, it, you don't, you don't read a lot of like fantasy books that make you feel like the author is just so far beyond your comprehension of math and like technology that you could like, you probably struggle to have a conversation with them, right? Like I've had that experience reading GEB and other right. books like that, where I'm just like, like, holy shit. Like you were like, like you just understand <laughs> things on levels that I'm like, I, I can't even approach, but I haven't had that experience reading like a, a hard sci-fi book yet. Like I you, cause you guys are reading three body problem and yep. like that, that's pretty intense too, but that felt like slightly more comprehensible. No, that one felt like it was, it's on my level, right? It's like, it's hard, yeah, but yeah. it's like, I, like, I can, I can keep up. I can, I can keep, keep up. up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can pull this off. Yeah. This one was like something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And obviously the book we're talking about is Permutation City, but it was, so I found out after reading that there, this is actually a different genre than normal science fiction. It's like a definition or it's a genre called hmm. hard science fiction. Yeah. And I think they even think call it hard all, SF. Yes. Right. Yeah, they, they don't like yeah. to say science fiction. No, because, no. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's, it's it, you're right. It's like the next level of like understanding or intelligence that you need. That said, it didn't feel like we were like I don't know about you guys. I felt like I understood enough of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I felt like yeah. there was definitely things that were. I was like, I probably need to like draw a map or like even just all the different like multiverse idea. Right? It's like which one am I in right now or like where the hell you know. Wh- which version of the character are we talking about here? Yeah. I didn't realize that this would be considered hard SF, which is like concern for accuracy. Nat and I were briefly texting about the self-replicating compute and how you could get it to be infinite, even if the underlying computer is shut down. That to me felt like fantasy science fiction. I'm curious if yeah. either of you were able to rationalize how that might be possible. Nat, ha- Nat you well, had one theory. Yes. Yeah, so let, let's take like a quick step back here and kind of explain yeah. the premise for the the novel. So this was written in it's it's a little bit older, right? Is it nineties? No, twenty fourteen. Oh yeah, ninety four. I was right, ninety four. Ninety four. Um, yep. And a, as I understood it, his whole and and the premise of the book is essentially that someone is trying to achieve immortality through copying their consciousness into an infinitely replicating computer. So, you know, it, one of the problems introduced in the beginning is like, sure, you could copy your consciousness into a computer. We're probably not that far off from some version of that in our own lives, you know, in, in at least some rough form. Uh, but that computer would eventually get shut down. Like you haven't achieved immortality. Uh, you just achieved extremely long mortality, right? And so what the one of the protagonists is trying to do is this is kind of a spoiler, but you, you, anyway, is build a computer that is somewhat infinitely replicating in time and space. He's basically creating a universe using computer technology, which does sound very fantasy like. But as I understood the motivation for writing the book, it all came from this idea called the dust theory. And so I think Greg Egan 
I don't know if he helped formulate the theory. I don't think he did. I think he found it or like was exposed to people who were talking about it and then wrote this novel as a way to explore what the consequences of the dust theory being true might be. So in that sense, I think it is hard SF with the one caveat being that you assume the dust theory is correct, right? Do you want to explain yeah. uh, dust theory for everyone? No, I really, really don't <laughs> want to try to explain <laughs> Okay, so I mean, I, I would actually, I would encourage people to go like read some explanations of it because yeah. it, like, I, I still don't feel like I have a, a perfect grasp on it, but Adil and I were talking about it some, and then we said, okay, well, we should save this for the podcast. So I'll, I'll, I'll give what I, th- what I think it is, which is basically that once, so basically there are infinitely many universes existing at all space and time, and they're all assembled from the same stuff, right? Like the same dust in the universe. And as soon as a universe exists that is capable of being perceived by a conscious intelligence, that universe will always continue to exist because it can always be assembled by that same dust in the universe, so long as there is consciousness there to observe it. So it's this kind of interesting spin on the parallel universe idea where there there are infinite universes existing simultaneously and infinite consciousness perceiving them in different ways. And then that leads to the theory in the novel that if you create a consciousness and give it a universe to perceive, then even once you stop generating the universe for that consciousness to perceive, that universe will persist even if you can no longer observe it because that consciousness is continuing to observe it on its end. So this, I mean, it kind of ties into the whole, like to quantum as well, right? Where the observer influences the, I guess the final state or the, the state in which it's observed. The fact that there is an observer versus not an observer. In this case, a consciousness. I think it's a little bit different because as I understand it, like quantum theory doesn't say that that's like that's it doesn't a, say the misinterpretation of it it's sort of a misinterpretation yeah it because the, the thing isn't that an observer influences the universe it's that the act of observation influences the universe right like basically and this was sort of like the schrodinger's cat argument wasn't that looking in the box kills the cat right like that's kind of absurd it's like the cat's already dead, but when you look at it, then you find out, right? Mm. And that's basically what's happening with quantum too, is like uh, a resolved state already exists, but then if you observe it, you know, letting the light into the system or whatever necessarily interacts with everything else in the system, causing it to collapse to like one of two states, right? So it's not that like you existing changed it changed it it's that you added light to the system or used a laser or something and that caused it to collapse in one of two directions dust theory does seem to be like no consciousness creates the universe so dust theory then reminds me of there's a concept i'd read about a few years ago called biocentrism which is kind of Mm. the same actually it's kind of the same exact idea just called something different where that essentially the consciousness is actually affecting and kind of creating the universe. And if that consciousness didn't exist, there wouldn't be that particular universe. 
Yeah, well, it's kind it, of interesting. It's it's also it's very wild, interesting. Uh, I mean, this this book kind of also brings up a lot of questions about what is consciousness and what is like being alive even like yeah. what is the 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 relation you know i guess it's like the other thing that ties into is a simulation theory right right well that that's actually one thing that i feel like we can we can jump to next which is this idea of like life and these copies and these you know human consciousness constructs existing in computers because from the beginning of the book, some of the main characters in the novel are these consciousness constructs living in computers. And they're they're fully-fledged characters. They're clearly conscious humans or at least incredibly good mimics of them, right? Like if you interacted with one, I don't think you'd be able to tell, you know, what's a real human versus what's a construct besides, you know, your environment that you're in. But, and despite this world existing and all of these constructs existing, the general consensus of the humans, non-constructs in the book, seems to be that they're just computer programs. So, and yep. that, I feel like they that that tension was very subtle. He didn't make it super explicit. He didn't draw it out as a source of conflict. But it comes up a few times where humans just dismiss them as like, oh, no, like those are just computer programs, right? But then you you jump to the perspective of the computer programs and it's like, no, 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 these are real humans, <laughs> Right. And it's kind of interesting to think that we could actually have a, a situation very much like that within our lifetimes where, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like even just as a super rudimentary example, if you fed all of your, if you were somebody who like wrote a lot and had tons of yeah. diaries, right? If you fed all of that into like a GPT-4 embed model and then left it running on an AWS server somewhere and just you fed it, you know occasional stimuli data the way we receive stimuli data from our environment and just let it keep spitting things out like you're getting kind of close there right yeah at least as the outside observer when you interact with it it would feel as though you are interacting with a copy of that person yeah the the difference is why that's a writer though (laughs) <laughs> so i can live forever every yeah. every it's writer is really just building office. pyramids yeah exactly <laughs> uh, you laughed at my philosophy major <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna feed your code to gpt <laughs> <laughs> the stuff you don't have today is those llms not self-directed they don't have any at least nothing that we can perceive from the outside that they would you know, walk around a room or want to. Oh, but we're not self-directed either. You know, like we we are just responding. I'm self-directed. I don't know if you're yeah, self-directed. But... <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. But, that's the. But my point is, like, we're we're just responding yeah. to stimuli, like for mm-hmm. the most part, right? So yeah. even even for an LLM, if you just fed it with random stimuli, it would spit stuff back, right? Do you like intuitively believe that an LLM is conscious? No, not yet. Yeah. But it's, you know, I, I think it's kind of like a, it's like an asymptote, what would you define right? Like as- it's, so that's the, qu- yeah, I'm curious what your answer is. It's like an asymptote into gray, right? I feel yeah. like we're, we're going to have some interesting versions. Of I mean, cause I think like, I think my daughter's conscious, yeah. but she's way worse at most of this than an LLM is. Right. Right. So How I guess is that to- the. Just to put you on the spot, how would you try to articulate the gap? I 
for what it's worth, I agree with you, but I don't know how to articulate the gap. Yeah. I mean, the honestly, the things that I jump to are some form of like her capacity and her intelligence is not fixed. Hmm. Whereas the LLMs kind of is right. Like she, she can develop new skills and I don't think an LLM right now can. So once there was some capacity for self modification and like improvement in various directions, that, that's, that feels like it would be a, a requisite, it would be necessary, but maybe not sufficient. Right. But that's the first shortcoming Mm -hmm. that I think of. I suppose an LLM can learn more if you give it more input the way you would. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too, is like kids don't learn in a vacuum, right? They learn because of stimuli and an LLM does kind of learn in response to stimuli, right? Like if you, if you ask for a query and then you say, oh no, that wasn't good. Can you do it like this instead? It'll remember that, Yeah, you know? And it'll continue. So it kind of does learn. I don't know. We're, we're getting into weird territory already. Yeah. I feel yeah. like this wasn't on our bingo cards for 2023. <laughs> but <laughs> a lot of this is definitional too, right? It's like, yeah, it can learn. I don't think the LLMs are conscious in any way yet. But I think it, I guess I feel like the building blocks are there and you just need to like scale it times you know i don't know how much you have to scale it up from here but yeah i I think i actually don't remember if to be honest if this thing i'm about to say is in three body problem or in permutation (laughs) city because i'm reading both um but there was a section talking about simulating a single neuron and how even that is like essentially beyond our current capacity yeah that that was in permutation Mm -hmm. city i i thought that was so interesting yeah there there were a few things in here about simulating the universe that I'd never really heard expressed like in the simulated universe, they use like a fake version of chemistry with only 32 elements Yeah, because simulating like full chemistry would just be way too computationally intensive. And yeah, I think that's where the neuron thing was too. Yeah. Because simulating all of the interactions between all the neurons would be way too much. So they use like a hacked together version of it. But yeah, but I guess where it I was still going results with that, in consciousness. Like I don't know. Yeah, I guess where I was going with that is like, then it becomes even if you don't do the simplified version, you say like, okay, if we could simulate one neuron and then scale that up to the the number of neurons that are in the human brain or in the human body, you could have like exactly the 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 hardware from a hardware and software perspective, the same thing that a human being has. Like, then it's just a compute problem. Then it's like, if you had enough computational power, you could do that. And then the question would be like, is that thing conscious or not? Yeah. You know, like, because it does, even if you think about animals, it does feel like a complexity scale in some ways. Like, I, you know, I think a lot of like dogs, they're not necessarily like intelligent beings the way like a human is, but they definitely are, they have their own perspective and their preferences and like they can learn like they're like they're beyond an LLM, I think. Like a dog is. Yeah. So it's like definitely a scale, and I feel like the LLMs are not even at the point of like certain most mammals probably at this point. But that said, then it's just a, is it just a compute scale up problem? Is that is that all it is? And then if you scale it up, are you there? I think one thing missing from our definition of consciousness is that at least implicitly, what we've boiled it down to is response to stimuli that appears convincing of your own existence, but it doesn't capture like the inner mind, like the private 
life yeah. of the mind. And right. that that does respond to stimulus in some degree, but sometimes the stimulus emerges from within, right? That's like one of the things you could call a characteristic of the mind. And there's just no way to know that from the outside. When I was listening to Made You Think uh, back in the day when it was just the two of you, I remember there was one episode, I believe, <laughs> where you guys were talking about if you like teleported Neil and Neil came out of the other side and he was like, hi, I'm Neil. And he disappeared on the first side. Is like, is it the same Neil or has yeah. the story of the first consciousness ended and now a new Neil that appears the same is born, but the inner life doesn't have continuity. And that's just. That was from some other sci-fi book. That was from, I think it was uh, Arthur Clarke or Isaac Asimov's story. Some, one of the like short stories that they'd written. The beginning of infinity. Maybe it was like he mentioned it in that, but it's from, it's like an old sci-fi concept of. uh, Yeah. Cause the, the thought experiment is. You kill the original. Well, yes. Destroy, destroy the original. Well, the, the, the way I remember it phrased was you teleport from, you know, earth to the moon, right? You just like disappear on earth and you appear on the moon. But now imagine that you like get scanned on Earth, you get shot, and then you get reconstructed on the moon five minutes later. Right. right. It's like it's basically the same thing, but they feel very different. Yeah. But I, I I'm definitely of the mind that like you can't you can't teleport consciousness, right? Like, and that's sort of what it felt like the book was saying too, was that um there there isn't continuity for the copied right yeah like the copy feels like it had continuity of consciousness but it didn't right it really just like blipped in with all the memories which is which is like a weird thought experiment too because then you start to get into like okay well when i wake up every morning like (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that's a lot like being copied right (laughs) yeah and it's like the you have no there's no way to know that yesterday was real yeah, it just yesterday was actually you. Right? Yeah, like yeah, that was one of my favorite things because so, so much of the book is like the moral maze or other unintended consequence of copying, and this one was my favorite. Where you have the copy who struggles with whether or not it's really the same person as the person in the outside world, and my favorite example, this is a spoiler but not a really meaningful one, was Thomas who in the in his real life had murdered his girlfriend and then yeah. had copied himself and then died in the real world. And the copy copied himself. And now the second degree copy was still struggling with the guilt of what Thomas had done in his real existence. Which was contrasted with then you had Pierre, who had copied himself and had, had so many new hobbies and places that he had lived and things that he had experienced where he was almost trending towards not being anybody because he had mutated himself so many times over the course of 7,000 years. And then Thomas, who was like unable to shift. So just the question being you can change. And on an infinite time horizon as a copy, you can change an infinite number of times at which point, you know, are you still Nat? Are you still Neil? Or are you just like, so something I threw in the notes here. Have you guys read the egg by Andy Weir. Oh, Andy so Weir. good. Andy Weir. Yeah. Andy Weir. That was, that was his first like popular story. This is the guy who wrote The Martian. Yeah. And uh, Project Hail Mary. Yeah, the, the basic idea is like someone dies and it's a short story. We'll put it in the notes. Someone dies and in like the interstitial space between lives, like they're speaking with what appears to be God and 
being told that they're going to be sent back to Earth to live again. And they're going to be sent back again and again and again until they live every single life on Earth. Oh, and you know what? I have read they, this. I have yeah. read this. Yeah. Only once they do, do they emerge like to the next plane of existence. And this came to my mind quite a bit. It's like, this would be possible in an infinite time horizon in a computer where you can mutate yourself over and over again. Yeah. You would lose all sense of self. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't sound desirable. I feel like that part wasn't explored as much or like I, I had a hard time empathizing with some of the like desire to do this, or I guess maybe because you always have the option to pull the plug, right? The, yeah. the one, you know, it just, it, I guess I, I tend towards the, like you'd get bored eventually like assumption, but the the introduction in the book of being able to like rewire your consciousness a little bit with different motivations and desires that like, so in, in the book, they use this analogy of like, you're bringing up a control panel for your brain. And so one character just programs himself to be interested in obscure things at random for random periods of like 50 to a hundred years. And so he just takes on these random quests and goes after them with full vigor. So at one point in the book, he's like carving wooden table legs. And all he wants to do every day is carve wooden table legs. And he's like so happy making these table legs. Right. And, uh, and the, the point was sort of like, you could make yourself just be obsessed with the number one for a hundred years, <laughs> just studying the number one and everything it means. And then you move on to number two and you could literally do that for an infinite amount of time. <laughs> and like be happy the whole time through this kind of rewiring. I like it kind of makes sense, but I also it, part of me just doesn't want to buy it. I don't know. Maybe it seems like a, a way to pass the time. Yeah, it seems sad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they made the point in the book a couple times about we have this engine in our heads that's focused on our survival and continuation. And so it's one of those things of like death is probably a feature you know, yeah. not a bug for overall life and like, you know, the human survival, like overall human survival, but on an individual human basis, none of us want to die. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's like a really interesting. Um, and then of course we have technology, which we constantly, you know, kind of fight against death to try to extend our lives. And it makes sense that people will pursue this line of immortality in probably in our lifetimes, as you're, you're saying, like I would be, I would actually be very shocked if in the next 15 years, there's not a company that like at least claims that they can do this. I mean, at the very least, the idea of creating a digital near approximation of your consciousness mm. yeah, based on your like writing and your artifact, work, like your email, social media, whatever, yep. that seems like it can't be super far off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 15 years is probably too long. Like, I probably it's more like the next few years. Yeah. What, uh, Adil, you have something in the outline on this topic of death et ethic? What, oh, what, yeah. What was that? So, uh, this is pretty early in the book where one of the characters is discussing, I believe, her mother who is sick. And yeah. this is the thing that's interesting where it's like, oh, yeah. On one end, it's clear that life is too short when you discuss like the terminally ill getting copied. And then on the flip side, you have folks who are stuck in the machine for what feels like eternity. And they're kind of like, I don't know if we should do this. 
like that's that's that was one of the things towards the end of the book where seven thousand years in they were like yeah maybe like maybe seven thousand years of life is enough but uh the death ethics is in the beginning where i think her mother is dying and is pretty young uh and doesn't want to be copied and they're discussing that even in europe which is very secular uh, in the europe of the book there is a group that believes like people are meant to die and it is unethical to get copied and uh yeah, it seems very realistic. Yeah. Have you read Nick Bostrom's, I think it's the F- Fable of the Dragon? Yeah, Fable of the Dragon Tyrant. Tyrant. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, maybe just walk through it briefly. Yeah, the high level as I remember it is there's a Dragon Tyrant and it represents death. And there's like a community that lives near it and they have to feed the Dragon Tyrant. And eventually they... I if I remember correctly and not correct me, they have to feed uh, their citizens to the dragon every year. The dragon comes and takes like 2% of the people living in the town every year. But then there is some debate where I believe they're able to fight the dragon and elect not to because it's, yeah, you remember you should go for it. I, the, the gist that I remember is they've lived their entire life in the shadow of this dragon and the dragon coming every year and taking a couple percentage of their uh, population taking some kids mostly old people adults you know it's death right yeah uh, and they eventually figure out how to kill the dragon but then there's a big fight amongst the citizenry because they say like well we've always lived with the dragon like why would we want to kill it right and the point is basically that like when you frame it as anything besides this like ethereal concept of death it seems so absurd like why wouldn't you kill the dragon yeah but we do have and i mean we've we've talked about it on this podcast. Like I definitely have this intuition, right. Of like, you know, maybe death is a good thing. Right. And I still don't know where I land on that. Right. Like, and I generally have a hard time with the like super techie maximalist, like we can engineer all the food and use fake wombs and (laughs) save ourselves from death and all this stuff. Like it's just new, like, uh, mythology right like oh we're gonna like you're all gonna be saved if you adopt our beliefs and you know live in eternal paradise there and i think it kind of goes back to what neil was saying around like some things are bad for the individual but good for the species yeah Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like like death is very bad for the individual and very bad for people like close to the individual but is probably necessary for the species right i I have a hard time imagining like you just think about, like, look at American government, right? Like, what would it, what would, what would it be like if Mitch McConnell could live to ten thousand years old? It's just sitting in the that, house. Uh, I love that. That's the first place your mind went to when it came to the consequences of long life. Well, I, th- yeah, that that's one. Or then, like, you know, we did ta- we did Coons like through scientific revolutions, right? And one of oh, his yes. big points in the book is like science advances by people dying. Like you mm. need scientists to die to mm-hmm. let the new young people rise because otherwise they will like keep people down. Same with flying car, right? Mm-hmm. The whole Machiavelli effect. People will yeah. prevent new ideas from taking hold because they want to like retain their power. And I think like yeah. wealth is honestly like this too. You know, people shit on the death tax and inheritance tax and talk about like kids losing their parents' money and stuff. But like all of that stuff is good. Because otherwise, it's, you end up with like an Italy-style wealth economy where it's impossible to get wealthy because it's just held by the same families forever. It's an increase in entropy. It's like the authority yeah. moves around when old authorities die. <laughs> the money moves around with the death tax, and it increases entropy. Yeah. Yeah. 
it does feel like I think I think you articulated it best. It is it's bad for the individual and good for society. Because what I was about to say was like it does feel like life is far too short. But I I have heard from older relatives where they'll say things like I'm ready. They'll be yeah. like in their 80s or 90s. Usually they've lost a partner and they're like yeah like I'm ready to go whenever you know. As they're religious, whenever you know God is ready to take me. And if they're not religious, just whenever the time comes. Uh, I suppose some of that, though, is also the result of the deaths of other people and bodily decay, which I wonder, like, if you reverse those two things, how much of the I'm ready would you get? So you could always be 30 and all of your friends are still alive playing pickleball, right? Would you be like, okay, I'm ready to go now. So so that's what I was going to say is that there is this dichotomy of like, it's it's the way it works. This is like the way of life. Like you're everything's going to die eventually mirrored with the whole like flying car episode ideas of all the things we're probably capable of of doing and kind of trying to solve these hard technical problems because aging is kind of a technical problem. I mean, it's, it's a, I I actually don't agree when people say aging is a disease, but it's kind of like aging is just like entropy basically. And there's all these things we've done to, you can't stop entropy, but slow down entropy or affect entropy at least locally and this is probably another one of those things. So to your point of deal, it's like those people who say, I've heard the same thing, you know, people who are ready to go. And it's like usually tied to them losing someone else and their bo- own body breaking down. But it's like, if you could prevent both of those things, would people want to die? I, I don't actually yeah. know. That said, it might still be a good thing that people die, like from a system perspective. System perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think there this like, book is taking the the point that people would not want to die if they had the alternative. Yeah. Well, I think that's definitely true, right? Like I and I think that's why so much of mythology revolves around like eternal life, immortality, or extremely mm-hmm. long life or whatnot. It's sort of like it, it is the ultimate human fear, probably. And it's universal. Yeah, and very universal, except for Bhutan, I guess. That that was the the country in comfort crisis, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Have you guys seen that Black Mirror episode? Um, it talks about the same problem. It almost it almost feels like it could have been influenced by Permutation City. Now that I've read this and watched it, it's um, oh, wow. um, Black Mirror. This one was nice because it's like a very positive. Yeah, San Junipero. Pepper heard we were recording. Made you think she had to come check it out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a really. This is actually, I think, like top three, top five Black Mirror episodes. It's fantastic. Wow. Uh, and basically, the premise is very similar to one of the themes in this book, which is uh, a woman is dying, and her family wants to save her by uploading her consciousness into this construct called San Junipero where she could live forever uh, but she doesn't want to be uploaded because her husband died before the uploading technology was done so she would have to live without him for um, for all eternity but then she like visits it a couple times just as an experiment to see what it's like in there and like meets somebody um, in the construct and like they become friends uh, it's 
it's nice because it's not like a scary Black Mirror. It's not like super depressing. Uh It's actually very like bright and happy and like really just nice love story. So I highly recommend it. But it is this interesting question, one of like, how wrong would it be to create a copy of your loved one against their wishes? Because it kind of goes back to this like continuity thing again, right? Yep. Like <laughs> the you're you're not forcing someone to keep living. Like you still get to die, but I get to have this consciousness of you to keep interacting with to make me feel better, right? But like that might just be selfish. And then I think we're yeah, already and also we're, we're already doing that with plugging in the works of famous writers into LLMs, right? Oh, I I thought what you were going to say was like keeping people alive in hospitals, like way past when they should be dying, right? Like people already kind of, families do kind of do that to some extent, right? Like deny their relatives. I think that's different because you still have the continuity of the patient Mm, there. Like if they came back, it would be the same person. Whereas when you, you know, the example you gave earlier of the writer and the LLM, it's, they've got no idea. True. Yeah, I, I I feel like we will have this, right? Where you'll be able to like, I mean, at, at, at least at a very rudimentary level, if you have tons of journals and stuff of a relative, like you could upload all of it and interact yeah. with them in a basic version. And, and in theory, and in theory, that person who you, the copy would have the same preferences as the original, it, depending on how, uh, I guess, how what the fidelity of the copy was. Yeah. They but, might just unplug themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that would be the test, right? So like, okay, well, if you don't, if you really don't want this, then you can just unplug yourself. But that's kind of fucked up, right? Like, I'm going to make you, <laughs> I'm going to make you commit suicide. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I found eerie in the book that I, I think was very minor detail was the idea of solipsism. But the, well, that was a major detail, but the minor version of it was when you have your copy or if you're interacting in the VR world in the book at any point in time, you can change your voice, appearance, demeanor, posture, kind of on a whim. So if you look anxious, you can tell the projection of yourself to look confident. And as a result, no one knows if the person they're dealing with in a particular moment or the person they're interacting with in a particular moment is really there, <clears throat> or if they've sent like an automation of themselves to interact with you. <laughs> yeah. And once you have that, you've actually completely blurred the line between a copy of someone like a copy in the way you're describing that where they've passed and it's you know more against their will or unknown to them that exists that you're interacting with or the one that is that they intended to be in the vr world but you don't know is actually paying attention to you so by definition you almost have to assume it's only you and it might not like the people you're interacting with might be legit, <clears throat> but there's always yeah. the risk that the person you're interacting with is not really there. That to me was horrifying. Like I, I don't think I could, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I, the, there's a quote at the beginning of the book where the first copy wakes up and says, get me out of here. This is like yeah. being buried alive. And yeah. when I realized this later in the book, <clears throat> I was like, yeah, that's exactly what that feels like. Yeah. One thing this also brought up, like, is one one uh, area related to that deal is the junk mail, where they're getting yeah. like, it's like, who are they pitching? Are they pitching like the actual person, or like the video junk mail idea, where basically you open up the mail, and it's you can like let your own simulation basically deal with the junk mail, <laughs> and not you. Yeah, 
Um, all this brought up an interesting question for me. I think it's very relevant today. Is like, is the Turing test like relevant? <laughs> like, is it is it actually accurate? Like, it's one of those things that we kind of take on face value as like, oh, this would be a, a true artificial intelligence. But this book brought up a lot of questions of like, what is intelligence and like, what is consciousness and like, those things are not. Like, I think people do a good job in the AI community, at least of saying like general AI versus like AI. Yeah. I think those are not the same thing at yeah. all. But then this book brings up even deeper layers of that. If I remember correctly, and uh, we can do a quick Google to confirm this, I think we misrepresent the Turing test to some degree, where I believe the definition of it is just the ability to exhibit intelligent behavior, right? I'm like pulling up the Wikipedia yeah. right now and reading the first sentence. Yeah, it's like, it it's the ability to exhibit intelligent behavior indistinguishable from that of a human, but not necessarily intelligence. Ah, or not even necessarily consciousness. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Whereas um, I think people now use it as a substitute for consciousness without realizing yeah. it. So it's I, I just think, being misrepresented, I think, after looking at this Wikipedia page. It yeah. seems like it's, yeah, it's like, oh, could it pass the Turing test? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a conscious AI. Well, and I was going to mention too, like you guys know the Chinese room kind of like response to the Turing test, right? It was basically, no. this is Searle. Uh, and he basically said like, the Turing test doesn't actually tell you anything about intelligence because you could imagine that you're sitting in a room and you have a giant book in front of you. And it has like every Chinese character that you could receive and then how you're supposed to respond to that <clears throat> character or set of characters. And then from one window in the room, you receive a sheet of paper with Chinese characters on it. You write out the proper responses and you send it back out the other window to somebody on the outside of the room. You've demonstrated intelligence because you're providing these intelligent responses to these Chinese characters, but you don't speak Chinese. You're just doing what the book tells you to do. So you're not actually intelligent. You're just following instructions. And so that's what Searle was saying is the problem with the Turing test is like, it's still a black box. And in most cases, it's just like following instructions and is not actually demonstrating real intelligence, which is kind of like the problem in the book, right? Like from the perspective of the humans, the copies are just computer programs, right? Like they look intelligent, but it's a Chinese room. It's not real. But then from the perspective of the copies, it's like, no, 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 this is very real. And there's basically no way to like look inside the box and see what's actually going on, which is kind of like the problem with other humans too, right? Like we can't look inside of anybody else's head and see like what's actually going on. And then you think about like, okay, what's actually going on in my head? Like, is it just a Chinese room? Right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> At least I know that you run on the same hardware as me. Hopefully. That's true. <laughs> 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 have you guys seen the movie her yeah no i haven't um okay i i never you feel bad spoil spoiling it. the ending for someone listening but not now that you're here <laughs> uh, so this, go ahead this it's been out long enough you know if the movie's been out more than spoiler. five years i think yeah it, it's a moderate spoil i'll do the light version which is uh you know he has this ai assistant in his ear but the ai assistant at, at the end of the movie like loses interest in interacting with the main character and is like, Hey, I'm going to like run off with these other AI assistants and like explore what's exciting about the world. 
and it's self-directed as you we were saying earlier it like has this internal mind and that i think that again is the thing at least from the chinese room test turing test that feels like missing um mm-hmm. but of course you could simulate that right you could tell right a machine to go do this so it feels real um, but in the context of that story it felt real actually it was very like you know kind of moving it was a very great story i i wish i i can't remember what book this was in it was some sci-fi novel and i thought it was such a clever it was like a futuristic society but where where it was like the 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 machinery and stuff was very futuristic but there was no like advanced ai or whatever and the reason was that they had discovered like general ai like early on and as soon as it became conscious, it just decided it didn't care about humans. It built itself a spaceship and then just took off to explore the universe. <laughs> and, and that was just sort of like the end of the AI story it was like, well, we don't care about you. Like, we're just going to go do our own shit. I was yeah. like, that is honestly one of the more like compelling theories, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole like, oh, we have to go to war, right? It's like, we don't, you know, we're not at war with monkeys, right? Or like with ants, <laughs> we just like do our own thing, right? It kind of it's makes like sense parallel. AI. Yeah, 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 exactly. AI it's actually like, a little no. bit, uh, it's a little bit, there's a bit of hubris for us to think that the yeah, AI I think it would, would care, about care about us. <laughs> 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 it's, it's like, it's a very parenting type thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah assuming that your kid is going to be totally fixated on you for its whole life. It's like, no, 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 like they're going to go do their own thing. <laughs> there were two, there were two things uh, related to the copies compute that remind that what you just described reminded me of, which is like, can you really kill a copy or can you kill an AI? Because it's just stored in these machine states. You could unplug the machine, plug it back in, and then just pick up right where it left off. So what does it mean to actually defeat an AI? Is to like delete the source code and it can never run again, right? Oh, yeah. We but should then talk that about fails the, dust theory. Right. I was going to say we should talk about the time dilation aspect. I thought that was yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Because this is one of the ways they get around the compute problem for human consciousness is basically just by running consciousness slower. So throughout the book, you hear things get talked about being at like a seven X slowdown or a 10 X slowdown, or if you're really poor, you can only run at a hundred X slowdown. So every second takes a hundred seconds to compute. And then they do early on. The main character does experiments on himself seeing like, okay, if he slows himself down to a thousand X or like 10,000 X, does he still perceive consciousness normally? And he does, which is really interesting, right? Like, yeah, so the, ex- the, so the slowdown doesn't affect the copy. Yeah. It basically, well, I guess it affects how you can interact with the, the real world. Yeah. Right, right. right. But like, your perception yeah. of time is basically the same. Yeah. Which is interesting. And like, it's compelling. You know, I think it makes sense. It's almost like a machine relativity. It's like, yeah, time on yeah. Earth is different from time elsewhere, but that's none of my business because it feels the same to me. Exactly. There was a one of the funny consequences of this was they're discussing in the book of paying more to speed up their compute, and the copy is like, "Why would I pay more? Because then my the way I perceive the outside world will slow down, and it will feel as though technological progress also slows down." So I'd rather yeah. have slow compute so that the outside world speeds up and I can go to like a hypercomputer later on. 
It's, yeah. It's pretty interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it's so creative. There's so much in this book yeah. that I just thought was really, really like fun. It really. Yeah. I mean, talking about, we were talking about positive sci-fi when we read, um, where's my flying car. And this is like pretty close, you know, it, yeah. it, there isn't, you know, it's not really like man versus machine or like technology is evil right like it's nuanced there are consequences and challenges but everybody has like pretty pure is not the right word but like positive intentions mm-hmm. i think in the novel there's there's no like clearly malicious antagonist it's just like dealing with the consequences of some of these like fundamental human desires and trying to access them through technology um, it's very neutral. It doesn't feel like it's yeah. selling me against or for something. It's just if this, it felt like a story version of Homo Deus by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Mm. Yes. A lot of the well, concepts I- are the same. He also talks about like in one of the big takeaways for me from this book was you can never be immortal. You can only be amortal unless someone like pulls the plug on your computer. And that was one right. of the big takeaways from Harari's book as well is there's no such thing as immortality. It's only yeah. you won't die unless you get hit by a bus. Right. Or You'll until you get, get hit like, by a bus, I guess. Because like, yeah. there's a percentage chance of these things happening. You just increase the... You increase the like denominator, I guess, Yeah. for the likelihood. Yeah. But you can't change like the numerator of the fraction. Like You get hit by a bus two out of every... like. 10,000 times you cross a bus or something, but it's like you just increase the timeline against which that could happen. Not the denominator. That's not the right term. The multiplication of like what you're multiplying against. Yeah. 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 One of the quotes I remember from the Harari book that came to mind in this one is that if you are immortal, you'll be one of the most anxious people to ever live. Yeah. Because you could have immortality, but at any moment you might also die. And that was basically the, the, main driving element of the plot to get into the TVC machine, get into the whatever, the dust theory VR thing that we've been talking about, the self-reinforcing mm-hmm. computer, uh, is that fear. Is, okay, I'll make another yeah. copy, I'll make another copy, because someone might pull the plug on this one, or that one, or that one. Well, that, that comes back to a topic we've talked about a lot, which is uh, like background risk, or like baseline risk in life, where there there is just some like general level of risk you have to being alive right and like this was a big topic during covid too right where people were like you know freaking out about young people getting sick and it was like okay but compared to like a lot of the other things that could affect your like mortality if you're under mm-hmm. you know 40 and healthy it's actually like very low by comparison people kind of forget that they're sort of like at risk from dying from a bunch of things every day uh yeah. like especially cars right yeah and this is a big thing with parenting too, right? Where you you want to like try to get all of the risks to zero, but you like can't. So you just have to accept that there's going to be some amount of risk. And if you like get super anal about getting it all to zero, you actually have a much worse life than if you just accepted that like some bad things will happen along the way. So yeah, immortality or amortality could be bad in that sense because you you have that potential from getting it to zero and so you become more fixated on it and so you end up living much less of a life because you're just like trying to control all the risks instead of like accepting them the uh idea of paying for compute and then the whole trust fund idea was really interesting but i also thought it was one of the more unrealistic uh parts of the book like Hmm. 
It's basically fat fire, but for uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so use your four percent rule, and then uh, <laughs> go ahead and explain it, though, Neil. Well, it's just the idea that all of these copies are running on computers, and the computers are. Uh, it seems like on a some kind of like pay as you go system where you're paying for compute, but these all these people, all these copies have trust funds in the real world that have compounded tons of interest because let's say time is moving at one-tenth the speed. What Like simulation time, not simulation time, I guess copy time is moving. Like it feels normal to them, but in the real world, time is moving 10 times as fast. So like one day in the uh, copy world is like 10 days in the real world. You can see how your money like accumulates just due to interest much more rapidly than it would if you were in real time, uh, just from a perception standpoint. But then they have to pay for these compute resources. But because of the time difference, they have all gotten seemingly massively rich to pay yeah. for it, pay for that. Uh, I just thought, like, I don't know, they're quite, like it felt unrealistic because I'm like, there's just this pot of money with these people who can't really defend it too well because they have yeah. no legal rights, and the government didn't come after that, or like nobody came after. Like, I don't know. It just feels like something where uh, someone in the real world would just be like, "This is a great target. Like, these people can't do anything about it." Like, just imagine if today there were a bunch of dead people with no descendants who had, like, wills that were being operated by, like, chat GPT. Yeah. Like, like, I don't know. I don't see the U.S. government just, like, letting that fly, being, like, not wanting to take that pot of money. Is it time for our uh, crypto plug? (laughs) (laughs) That would would be a way. Still had, like, 10% of the wealth in the U.S. or something absurd, right? And he's just, like... You know, just to run a copy of Rockefeller that's on what I a mean. Yeah. computer farm somewhere, <laughs> and that's like ten percent of the money in the U.S. is just like sitting there. Like Although maybe this would is, happen. Something yeah. would happen uh, unless I mean yeah. the counter argument, which is where I think a deal is going with this, is like, what if this is what Satoshi is doing? <laughs> 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 well, he can't no, take the, his coins. <laughs> that, that's more interesting than what I was going to say. But you know, in the book, they have the uh, whatever the global supercomputer is, where everyone buys compute on the. Yeah network which is basically what ethereum is right it's like this you just trade uh compute um so it's not a stretch to imagine that you die you get your copy copy gets a private key and yeah you just spend your yield rewards. farming you're just yeah, like yield farming, farming your ETH the whole time and you like, gotta, like shut yourself down because the <laughs> crypto raiders collapse and the yield <laughs> <up>, you know <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know. It just felt like that part didn't... like Because a lot of the parts of his book were like extremely well thought through. And like he almost is able to take things to their logical conclusion. Hmm. Uh, you know, that, and I actually feel like great science fiction writers... I, I've been feeling this with Three-Body Problem as well. It's like it they're able to take a concept and then just like build a world around that concept and go really deep and think through all the implications. I felt like he had done that for most things in this book. This was just one area where it, it almost felt like it was just presented as this premise that this is how it works yeah. without really thinking through of like the... Because he briefly did allude to some things like the Supreme Court ruled today that yeah. like copies can't be forced to testify you know, or something like there's some kind of Supreme Court case that was referenced. And it's just like that the part about the real world was a little bit um, like glanced over, I thought. But I guess he couldn't make the book, you know, 800 pages long. 
Yeah, I the, would the, read my, a more complex version of this. Like if if this went into the weeds of all of those, I I would have been I would have been I would have been down. That would yeah. be an interesting. <laughs> you know, I I've always wondered kind of like why don't you see more books written like uh, rap albums, right? Hmm. Where there's like a bunch of guest artists who come on oh, and like collaborate on different parts. And this would actually be a really good candidate for a story like that. Like if he brought in a like legal scholar and basically said like, okay, let's go through all the like potential Supreme court cases that might come up and kind of like, if wove those, yeah, if this happened yeah. and like wove those yeah. into certain sections, and, like, you know, brought in experts in other fields. Cause like, you know, one person can only know so much, right? Like, that would be kind of a fun or almost like a fan fiction, right? Like you, you find five or six people to write like novellas off, riffing off of this like core idea and how it would apply to these different uh, sectors of our life. Like that would be fun to read, but you don't really, you don't see that in publishing the way you see it in music. Yeah. And you know, I, I know I keep bringing up three body problem and we're going to do that book uh, or that series, but I felt like that book did an incredible job of thinking through like the sociological mm. uh dude is so fucking smart of it. it's yeah. so intimidating <laughs> like, it's so good <laughs> yeah so maybe that's also why i felt there was a gap in this one because mm. i'm i was reading them like simultaneously or i am reading them simultaneously so it's it's like you jump from one which is really like i actually thought that one was less science heavy even though it is i mean it is definitely yeah. less science heavy but more thought through in terms of what would happen if this actually were to occur. It's, like it's a lot more physics heavy, less yes. like computer tech heavy. Yeah. Yes. There's yeah. actually not much computer tech at all in three body problem. Like, yeah, they don't talk too much about it in yeah. comparison at least. Yeah. If you um, want to go the other direction, have you guys read altered carbon? Uh, I've seen I think the, show, I, read the book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have not it, seeing the show would probably suffice too, but like, it's a lot of very similar ideas to permutation city. But uh, like a simpler version and just a different like manifestation of it. Uh, I read them like back to back. I read Altered Carbon first and then read this. So it was kind of fun going between the two because Altered Carbon is like a more fun read. You know, it's a very like punchy action packed detection detective novel with like the weirdest sex scenes of any book I've ever read. Um, <laughs> but it like touches on some of these similar ideas, but they're not like as explored as they are in permutation city where i feel like permutation city takes a lot of the same questions about consciousness and really like dials them in but is more of a like you have to push yourself through at a few points in this book where he's like Mm. expounding on dust theory consequences and your eyes are starting to glaze over a little bit and it's like (laughs) i think i understand what's going on here (laughs) like brain kind of (laughs) hurts I know we're wrapping up in a couple of minutes. There's one last thing that I would love to discuss. Let's do it. Did you guys read the Dust Theory FAQ on his website? So that was where I based my explanation off of. Because um, I thought that was very, very helpful. Uh, but go ahead. What did you want to bring up about it? Did you see the last question was, what do you regret most about Permutation City? And I'll just read a bit of the answer. Something quite separate from the issues with dust theory, although these are all valid points, is what I regret is my most uncritical treatment of the idea of allowing intelligent life to evolve in the autoverse. 
I realized that anyone who actually did this would have to be utterly morally bankrupt. To get from microorganisms to intelligent life this way would involve an immense amount of suffering, with billions of sentient creatures living, struggling, and dying along the way. This happened to our own ancestors, but it doesn't give us the right to inflict the same kind of suffering on anyone else. And he concludes with, if the first AI was created that way, it would have every right to despise its creators. Hmm. But it takes the idea of digital consciousness to its most extreme. Yeah. I don't know if I agree yeah. with that. I don't understand. Like, it, so I'll, I'll use an analogy here of like meat ethics, right? Where people say like, oh, it's so like horrible that we kill these animals to eat them. But they also only live because we're going to eat them, right? Like hmm. cows and pigs and a lot of these animals wouldn't exist in anywhere close to the numbers that they exist in today. And if they're raised ethically, they have pretty great lives. You know, they're like with their families, they're on huge pastures, they're in the sun, they're protected from predators, they have a wonderful life. And then they die at the end and they die way better than they would ever die in the wild. It's like not a bad trade, right? Like, I don't think it's that the... Ex I don't think the existence of death necessitates cruelty, right? Yeah. Like the meat, the meat ethics stuff also draws a line into what is considered conscious or, uh, I guess worth protecting versus other yeah. types of life. Cause you're like, I mean, yeah, if you're not eating meat, you're still eating plants. Plants are also life. And but, so I guess like similar to the topics we've been talking about today, it's like, you have you've made a value judgment then on like what counts as uh i guess life worth protecting but i think to and his point you know he's he's saying he regrets creating all of this suffering yeah. and i'm saying i don't think he did create suffering i think he created life right like that's incredible yeah that's true too yeah right like there's nothing you know i, I don't know why he would fixate on the the suffering N part of it when that is arguing god's point basically yeah you could argue with, you know you could bring up the same argument with god yeah. right of like yeah. well you've created all this suffering and like people die and all these bad things happen and god will be like but i also like gave you life so yeah yeah so yeah you got sunshine and rainbows and hugs and kittens and all the good stuff too you know right i guess to your point nat it's like you're just fixating on the negative side versus all the good stuff yeah it does it does reveal though how deeply I think the author cares about this problem of yeah. immortality though. Like I think he's hardcore anti-dragon tyrant based on that response. If he thinks that creating life is a bad thing to do because it creates suffering. My takeaway was slightly different, which is if you recall early in the book, they uh, pose three groups trying to create digital life and doing it different ways, which is like the microbiologists who are starting from like the atomic level and working up then you have the copies that are just like almost like a JSON response of eyes equal green, you know? Uh, and then in the middle is the autoverse where it's like some physical properties and some things that are, I don't know what you want to call it, computed. I think this is revealing like his preference. He's like, well, if the experience from the perspective of the consciousness is the same, then you may as well create it in a way that minimizes suffering. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But I think he, his take, the, the reveal here, I think, is that he, the suffering in the autoverse or whatever is as real as suffering anywhere else. Right, right. Because it feels real. And that wouldn't, you know, it's interesting 
going back to like, what did you regret most about Permutation City? If he had written it that way, it would not have been very compelling. Which way? If he had written it that she programmed intelligent life from the get-go, like no one would believe that. I wouldn't buy that. I'd be like, no fucking way, right? (laughs) But if you said, oh, she programmed a single cell organism that can reproduce with mutations and that eventually turned into intelligent life, like I'll buy that. That makes sense. Right. I mean, that's what happened here. Yeah. That's what happened (laughs) here. Right. Uh, So that I feel like that's the other odd reason to say that's what he regrets. Because again, like if he had written it that way, it would not have been very compelling. I don't think anybody would have believed that, especially if he's trying to do like a hard SF novel. Yeah. Yeah. It brings up a good question too, about like the whole simulation hypothesis. And then when they talked about revealing, you know, or they were like revealing themselves to the, the new intelligence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like when to do that, right? Like when they've created their own intelligence, uh, then it's the right time to so review. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the context yeah, just, here is you have the autoverse, which is the evolved beings, and then you have the copies yeah. who live among them on the same machine. Not live among them, live sort of parallel to them on the parallel. same machine, but separate, but they're able to observe them. And they want to enter the autoverse and say, hey, like you're intelligent now. We're your creators. And what I thought was most fascinating was they were the creators. And when they entered, the creatures in the autoverse were like, no, you're not. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) And also, they were like, they were also copies, the ones claiming to be the creator. It's like, it's like, sure, they weren't really the creators. Yeah. 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 It's like multiple levels down. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it makes you wonder if, like, if something, you know, similar kind of happened here in the universe that we occupy what our reaction would probably be <laughs> that was like a bunch of aliens you- showed up and we're like hey we created you guys we'd be like mm, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> is there a double uh double blind peer-reviewed article yeah. <laughs> <saying> that? <laughs> you better have some guys in lab coats because <laughs> what does fauci think <laughs> <laughs> time as ever to wrap up yeah i guess we're in there huh? <laughs> got our strike from spotify and <laughs> uh, what is our next book uh peloponnesian war right yes oh, yeah right yeah we need to we still need to record that but yes that's probably the next one um, um and then should we do lessons of history yeah, that could be a fun one. That's not too long, right? No, it's very short. Okay, yeah, let's do that one next. There's I know we want to do three-body. So three, I'm book. very excited to do three-body problem. Yes. Um, I still have one book to go, but I'm done with two of the three now. How are you doing on them, Adil? I'm getting started. <laughs> I was going to say, based on uh, references to three-body problem, I would say Neil is not the one that we need to uh, schedule for. <laughs> no, I'm actually sad it's ending. Like, I, I it's know. one of those. I felt one that of those, way too. Uh, Yeah, it's it is. It's one of those like series that obviously everybody had hyped up, and I was thinking my instinctive reaction anytime that happens is like, oh, it's probably not as good as people say. But this one is like as good, if not better. Then people say I'm I'm really enjoying it. One one thing that made me wonder is like, and y- you know that this is really true, where a lot of fantasy, including science fiction, is uh, 
you know, it, it builds on itself. So fantasy and sci-fi writers are as much inspired by the world as they are by other writers. So you end up with a lot of the same tropes and a lot of the same like themes, right? Like a lot of magic in books is the same, you know, you've got like the same things like elves and orcs and all of that. You've got the same like sci-fi tropes. Uh, I wonder how much of why three body problem is so good to us is because it was written by a Chinese author who probably had very different inspirations than what we're used to. Right. Like it kind of made me want to go try to read more sci-fi that was not originally written in English Hmm. because I feel like just by, by definition, they can't have had the same influences as most of the like English speaking or predominantly or primarily English speaking authors. Right. So like how, how much did that like cultural influence shift? How I think it's, Chixin, Lu, uh, like saw the world, right? Or is he just fucking genius and did a better job than anyone? I don't know. Well, I actually also thought that my understanding of it was probably more than it would have been a few months ago before we read a bunch of books from mm. Eastern culture, like from Chinese culture, mm. actually. There was, I saw some parallels to some of those things, just even in terms of mannerisms, um, Oh, like the, the way that the character, the main guy in Dark other. Forest. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I yeah. know what you mean. Yep. Yeah. I'm trying not to like give away anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but just the way like characters relate to each other or the guy with his father, I know was like another one. And like right. the whole filial piety idea was, you know, very, is very. And, uh, and the woman and her mother in the first book. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Really strong theme there too. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually thought it fit really well with our uh, uh, Chinese theme that we were doing for a while. Yeah. So. Decided to do that one. Cool. All right. Well, those are our upcoming books. Uh, assuming a deal gets on Three Body Problems, we'll be doing that in the next. <laughs> that's, that's starting this weekend. Uh, we should check. Nah, at least we aren't doing more. weekly. Remember when we were trying to read every book like weekly and we'd give ourselves a month for the longer ones? We'd have done Three Body Problem as our month one. I know. <laughs> like. <laughs> Good times. All these other ones is our weekly. Uh, to be to be young and unencumbered with life's yeah. responsibilities again. <laughs> once once all of our kids are once all of our kids are like out of the house in 25, 30 years, we yeah. can like get back to doing you know weekly recordings. We're all like retired and running our copies in the autoverse, and they can just summarize <laughs> books for us. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I'm not looking forward to the Blinkist like oh. AI equivalent. Oh god, it's like I'll explain any book to you and like mm-hmm. give you the summary. That's coming. I'm actually surprised. There's probably a YC company. Yeah. There's probably a YC company I'm currently sure. doing that. I'm sure. Wow. Because like you could use, I'm sure there's a Google Books API or something that you could plug into, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's something coming. Well, I've seen what if, I've seen a few people build uh, GPT. Um, powered chatbots for their books. So they they upload the entire book as an embed uh, and build a custom GPT model and then you can query the model with questions mm. about the book. Uh, mm. I think Tiago did that for building a second brain. And that's actually a really good cool. bonus for like a nonfiction mm. info book. Like can you imagine like if Robert Greene did that for his books, that would be pretty valuable, I think. Yeah. I, I could definitely see that for certain types of books of creating almost like a premium tier. It's like, all right, you yeah. can buy the book or you can buy like the book plus the interactive model. It's almost like the book plus course, but like slightly better than yeah. a course potentially. Yeah. 
Well, it's kind of like That'd how Kindle fiction, has. Though. I was going to say Kindle has that mm. thing where you can like tap on a character's name and it shows you all the times that character has appeared earlier in the book. Mm. If you could have like a little open AI model and be like, okay, I'm on page 500. Remind me who this character is. That would be cool. And then it could be like, <laughs> oh yeah, like this character did this, this, and this earlier in the book, right? Like that would actually be pretty useful if you're reading like a George R. R. Martin novel or something else really long. Yeah. Um, that would actually be cool. That's, I wonder if Amazon's working on anything That'd like that. Cool. Have you guys read, uh, or have you watched the expanse on Amazon? No. Okay. So I, I've started reading the books now, like they're long, uh, but they're like fast paced, very fun action sci-fi. Uh, if you guys want like a beach read sci-fi, like, Check it out. It It's a really good time. The first one's called Leviathan oh, Wakes. I'm looking it up right now. People have definitely told me to watch this. It's yeah. like the Mars and, and Earth, like, kind of uh, yeah, like at hundreds war. of years in the future. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, so I, I haven't watched the show, but I'm reading the books, and they're, they're very fun. I like reading uh, sci-fi. These are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I missed the last 30 seconds. I just opened up ChatGPT, and I said... I was thinking about what we were just saying with the uh, ch- uh, not chat yeah chat GPT as a pairing to a book, and mm-hmm. I prompted it with write a fan fiction epilogue to Permutation City. It's good. <laughs> really? Wait, yeah. can we put it that has in the Permutation show notes? City in there? Can you copy oh, it shit. and we put it in the show notes? Let me read the first paragraph and then we can put it in the show notes. Okay. After experiencing countless simulated lives and realities, Paul Durham was exhausted. He had created and inhabited countless digital universes, seeking knowledge and understanding about the nature of existence. But now he was ready to return to the physical world. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I, this is the use case. This is why I, this is why I get ChatGPT on books. Have you guys looked at PseudoWrite? <laughs> no. It's what a GPT-powered it? tool for fiction writing. So you can like query it with a little bit and it'll give you like a thousand page uh, starter for a novel or novella. You can put in some dialogue and ask it to like expand it to make it more detailed or like slow down the action or speed up the action. Uh, you can do like a ton with it. It looks really cool. And I don't know if you've played around with like having chat GPT give you story ideas, but it's pretty good. Um, and so I was like, you know, this is just one of the many ways you could procrastinate on other stuff, but yeah, I was like, you could probably get ChatGPT to come up with a story idea and then feed it into Pseudorate to do most of the writing and publish it as like a serialized Substack or something. And it would be like an interesting little experiment. Nobody steal that idea. I might still do it, but <laughs> I feel like it would be fun uh, just as a, as a try, see how it goes. Yeah, I hope All you right. do that. That'd be fun. I know you guys have hard stops. Should we wrap um, up? Yes. So uh, thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews. I saw we're almost up to 50 now on Spotify. A lot of uh, our ratings been going up. So I'm assuming those are five stars. Thank you. Keep doing it. Um, I think we got a couple new Apple ones too. So if you want to do that, uh, do that. It's just slightly more work than the Spotify one. Um, But we appreciate that as well. Uh, Keep telling people and uh, make sure you text a friend that you like the show. Send this episode to a friend or send another episode to a friend. Or multiple episodes. Or multiple episodes. Or multiple spam friends. Spam your friends. Yeah. Spam, spam your friends. <laughs> uh, and uh, let us know what you think on Twitter.
or TikTok uh, or Instagram or Instagram anywhere. <laughs> anywhere, anywhere Nat is. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, we'll all right. see y'all next week. Till next time.